Alright, open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3. Where we left off last time, it was the first part of verse 2, but we're going to read verses 2 and 3 to get started tonight. Uh, Jesus, it says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Now after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. Now, you may not have realized this, but there are actually, in what I just read to you here, in these two verses, seven descriptions of Jesus, in just in those two verses. And so we're going to take the time to take a look at it. Now, again, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that seven is a very important number. It's a number of perfection. And, and, and a lot of times, and I hadn't seen this until I began to really study this passage and these passages for this study. A lot of times we read these quick introductions and we try to move on to what we think would be the meat. There is a lot of meat right here in the beginning of this book. All right, So let's break it down into seven sections. All right, The first one we see is that Jesus is the heir of all things. You see how God has spoken through His Son in the last days, whom He appointed heir of all things. Jesus, the Bible actually says, is the heir of everything. And we'll take a look at a couple places. Go to Psalm chapter 2. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Go to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through eight. Now some of these things we're going to spend a little more time, some of these seven we'll spend a little more time on than others because of whether or not they'll be covered later in this study. But in here in Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 8, listen to what it says. It says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger, and He terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." And you see that? Here we see a picture of the Trinity already here in, back in Psalms. Now, what did Satan offer Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness? Does anybody know? He did. Remember what the third temptation was? If you'll bow down to me, he took him up on a high hill and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all this. And Jesus said, no, I'll wait until my father gives it to me. Because he knew that if he had fallen for Satan's trick, he would have never got it. And so here we see back in Hebrews chapter 1 that he is the heir of all things. Now we're not going to take the time to turn there, but you hopefully understand that in Romans chapter 8 verses 15 through 17, we are also, because of faith in Jesus Christ, described as what? Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, think about that for a minute. We've just talked about how the Scripture here says that Jesus is the heir of all things, and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And as I was writing my notes, you know what I thought? And we foolishly fight over parking spaces. Isn't that sad? The Bible says that we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ and one day it will be given to us. And how that all plays out is hard for us to even fathom. But we lose sight of that. And because of that, we start fighting for what is ours here in this life. If you really start to let this truth sink in, 
in this life, which is not the real one. This is just the preparation for the one to come. In this life, whether or not someone took something of yours is no big deal. That's why Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians and talking about them suing each other in the church, he says, why can't you be wronged? Why can't you be wronged? Why do you feel like you have to fight for what's yours? Why do you have to feel like you have to defend your rights? If you really believe who you are and understand, and you believe in a big, awesome, sovereign God who will take care of everything, we won't be as fighting for what's ours in this life because this one is the one we're living for. And like I said, the more this truth sinks in, the easier you'll be to be around. All right? Go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and let's take a look at the second part of the description of Jesus Christ. Not only is He heir of all things, He, Jesus, made the universe. I remember back in Chicago when I was pastoring, an 80-something-year-old man came to me one day and he said, Pastor, you keep saying Jesus did this and Jesus did that. I thought Jesus didn't come until He was born by Mary. And I had the chance to sit down with him and share a couple of the scriptures I'm going to show you here. How the Bible says that Jesus has always existed. And not only that, Jesus made the world. Alright, let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to John chapter 1, Gospel of John, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him... All things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Do you see that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, you say, well, how do we know that that's really Jesus that we're talking about? Jump down to verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word was with God and was God, and Jesus, who took on flesh... He was the one, through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing has been made. Uh, Go to Colossians chapter 1. Now, as you do this, I want you to put a bookmark here in Colossians, because we're coming back here to this chapter two or three more times uh, tonight. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Look closely what it says here. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand Jesus isn't someone who was born of Mary. Jesus is God. He took on flesh. That's why we call it the incarnation. He took on flesh when He became a man. But He has always existed. And there are many places throughout the Old Testament that you'll see places where Jesus Himself visited man on the earth, but He had not come in the flesh. But when He was born of Mary, He took on flesh. And the Scripture says here in Hebrews that not only is He the final word of the Father, He's the heir of all things, and He made the universe. Third thing we see in this section that we just read is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, you're going to see that in the next one, He's the exact representation of God too. We'll get to that in a second. These are slightly different. He's the radiance of God's glory. We just read that in John chapter 1, verse 14. Remember, it says He took on flesh, the Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory, what? From the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. 
Also, another passage that talks about that is in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Say this. If I'm in 2 Peter, with your help, that was 1 Peter. Alright, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, who's the we that Peter's talking about? Him and the disciples? Kind of. Not all the disciples got to see what he's, what he's describing. Do you see this? Look at it says here in verse 17. For he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Very good. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him there on the sacred mountain. Peter says, when we talk to you about the fact that Jesus is God and that He's the glory of God, we're not making something up. We're not sharing with you some story that was passed on to us. We saw it for ourselves. And not only was it incredible, it was so amazing and so awe-inspiring, Peter didn't know what to do. You know? But he said, we saw it when we were with Him on the mountain. He is the radiance of God's glory. Now again, I really want to reiterate, reiterate something I said to you last week. We unfortunately have painted a, a horrible picture in the church over the years of who God really is. Because if, as you're about to see, He's not only the radiance of God's glory, He's also the exact representation of God. Then what we saw and what we see in the Bible representing or describing God in Jesus Christ is who God really is. The problem though is this. When Jesus walked on the earth, who felt comfortable in His presence? The sinners. Remember, they would hang around with him and, and the Pharisees were saying, what's he doing eating with sinners? But he never approved of their lifestyle. He said to the woman at the well, go call your husband. And she said, well, I really don't have one. He said, yeah, you're right. You've actually been married five times and the one you're married to now, or living with now, you're not even married to. He dealt with their sin. When he, when he ate with Zac, uh, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus came out of the house saying, I'm going to pay everybody back four times what I stole. God never approved of the behavior, yet they did not feel condemned in His presence, did they? They felt loved. They felt accepted. They felt that He was someone that was approachable, someone that cared for them. Who felt uncomfortable in His presence? The Pharisees and those who have cell phones on during the Bible study. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, the Pharisees are the ones who felt... The, 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 the religious folk, right? The religious folk are the ones who felt uncomfortable in His presence. Now, let's take it to what we've done in the church now. We must have been painting the wrong picture of God over the last 50 to 100 or so or more years. Because now, who feels comfortable in the presence of God? The self-righteous religious folk. And who doesn't feel comfortable in the presence of God? The sinners. I remember a time that uh, me and Ken, and I can't remember who else was with us, Ken, we were eating Chinese food over in Palm Bay. And uh, there were four of us from different churches. And uh, we are sitting there just talking about the Lord. And I eat loud and I talk loud. And, and then this lady comes up to us and she said, I'm sorry for eavesdropping, but could you all tell me what church you go to? I want to go to that church. And I said, well, actually, we don't go to the same church. He goes to this church, and he goes to that church, and I go to this church. And oh, by the way, I'll be preaching at his church next week. And she said, well, where is that? I want to go. 
And we told her. And the very next thing she said was this. She said, I'm a very big woman. And she was. She was kind of heavy. She said, I'm kind of a big woman and I don't have a lot of dresses that fit. I said, okay, if I come in pants. And I wanted to cry. I also wanted to scream. But isn't it sad that that's the picture of God that we have portrayed? That if you dress appropriately, you can come and be with God. Folks, that's right, James chapter 2. The folks, I want you to understand this. When we look at this story, and we look at the book of Hebrews, and we look at the, the Bible, understand, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and as we're about to see, the exact representation of who God is. And if for some reason now sinners do not feel comfortable to even approach Him, or to come and be with Him, and the ones who feel comfortable are the self-righteous religious folk, is it not possibly true that we've been painting the wrong picture of who God is? for too long. We've turned relationship with God into a set of rules. We try to live by a set of values. We try to um, make sure we're crossing all our T's and dotting all our I's and that makes us better Christians than those who don't. Yes, ma'am. We've become our own Pharisees. But the Bible says the Christian life is, or the kingdom of God, not a matter of eating and drinking or what you do or what you don't do but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Folks, my prayer is that each one of you do not think that God likes you more because you crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's. Hopefully you understand that you are righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And He has made you holy and He will continue to make you holier. (laughs) He's the one who's going to do it, not you. So let's go to number four. Jesus is the exact representation of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 4. It says, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? Since my version says he's the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, remember I told you to put a bookmark there. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Somebody read verse 15 for us, good and loud. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Let's say that again. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You remember that 80-something-year-old gentleman that I told you about that was having a hard time with the fact that I said Jesus had done this and done that when he thought he only had been born by Mary? 
The verse that God used to help him see that Jesus was God was this verse right here. Because he understood full well, because he had been raised in the Bible, that God was a holy God and you were to worship no other gods. And then I said, well, look what it says here. It says, in the name of Jesus, every knee is supposed to bow and worship. If the Bible says we are to worship Jesus, but the Bible says we are to worship God only, what can we assume from putting the two together? And it was such a neat, neat day to see this 80-something-year-old man give his life in faith to Jesus Christ in my office that day when he came to realize he had been believing in a man who was born of Mary, who thought he thought he was a good man and, and a very righteous man. He came to believe that he was God. And he gave his life to him. It was a neat, neat thing. Jesus is the heir of all things. He made the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. And He's the exact representation of God. He is God. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. We're of the exact same essence. We're not similar, He said. We're the same thing. Of course, the Jews understood full well. If you want to go back and double check me, the Jews understood full well what he was talking about because that's in John chapter 8. They picked up stones to kill him. They said, wait a minute, you just said you were God. And they tried to kill him. The fifth thing we see back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is that Jesus sustains everything by his powerful word. Allison, you seem to have a bookmark there in Colossians 1. And read verse 17 for us. And he is before all things. Listen to what that says. And He, Jesus, is before all things. Remember, He created it all. But also, in Him, all things hold together. Now, there is, a, there is a mindset of some people in this world that do believe in God, but they believe that God kind of put things in motion and He's just kind of backed up and just let things go. Alright? There are those who kind of think God really doesn't have any interaction with us anymore. God created the world and He put things in motion, but He kind of sits back and lets things go on as they may. No, the Bible says that not only has God put things in motion by creating time and space and these ages that we live in, but He is also the one that holds them together. Remember a while back, it was a lot of years ago, this guy said that God was dead? According to Scripture, if that were true, we would cease to exist. In Him, Paul said, we live and move and have our being. And it's not only God, Jesus, who created the world, He holds it all together. Now, how many of you understand that? Me neither. I believe it. I believe it. I don't understand it. I don't know how exactly. How does that all work? I have a hard time holding my checkbook together. You know, I can't even imagine. I really can't. But God, the Bible says, is doing so, and I, and I believe it. Let's look at the sixth thing in Hebrews chapter 1 here, verses 2 and 3. Jesus pr- provided purification for sins. Jesus provided purification for sins. Let's go to a book that a lot of people don't read out of very much. Go to the book of Titus. If you're in Hebrews, just turn left a little bit. Go to the book of Titus. Verses 11, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us 
to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. I know for those of you that are listening right now who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, when you, when you get to that section, how we wait for that blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, something happened inside of you, didn't it? Something leapt a little bit, didn't it? You picture, I picture a little bit of how John the Baptist was in the, the, the womb of Elizabeth and when Mary came and spoke, the baby within her leapt because of the fact that she was carrying Jesus. I, something leapt inside of me when I read that every time. You know, it's, it's such a neat thing. But He not only is coming to gather us to be hit with Him, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that His very own. Now, let me ask you a real quick question here. And this is very important, so stick with me. I, I, I'm assuming that all of you would agree that you can't save yourself, right? Uh, nobody here thinks that they can purify themselves to be right in God's eyes. You understand that, correct? Um, the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And you, because you understand that, I pray, have come to a place where you have trusted that what Jesus did covers you. And you have been born again of the Spirit of God. He gave you eternal life. Your sins have been taken away and you're now in a living relationship with Him. Correct? But many of us, after that point, fall into a horrible habit of thinking that now we need to live right lives in order to be pleasing to God. If you could not purify yourself in the first place, what makes you think you could purify yourself now? Well, I'm a gooder person now because Jesus saved me. No, you're still you. He, he gave you righteousness. You're saved, yes, but you, the, the part that's you is still nasty, you know? You're not able to purify yourself. That's why Paul said in Galatians, he said, Who's bewitched you? After starting in the Spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourself in the flesh? Folks, I want you to understand, Jesus is the one who purified you for salvation. Jesus is the one who purifies you for your sanctification. You need to let Him do it and believe that He will and trust that He will. So now, we're ready to get to number 7. Actually, no, let's go to one more verse on number 6 on Jesus providing purification for sins. It's in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. It says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. Listen close, I love this verse. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Don't you wrestle sometimes after salvation with your conscience? Don't you sometimes feel like your conscience is condemning you? Hopefully, I'm not the only one. But this verse is so wonderful because the Bible says that what Jesus did on the cross not only cleanses my sin, it can cleanse my conscience and should cleanse my conscience. It's done. It's covered. It's clean. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God cares about my behavior. 
but a whole lot less than I used to think. That sounds like heresy. I want you to stick with me here. God is not measuring your performance to see whether you did good or you did bad. Actually, the Bible teaches that sometimes God wants you to fall so that you will learn through the falling and become more like Him. Some of you would have to admit some of your greatest times of growth have been times of your greatest failures as a Christian. But we've been taught that God's up there measuring our performance and seeing whether you did that right or did that wrong. No, God's not as concerned with your performance as much as you might think. He's more interested in changing your heart and having you come to a living relationship that would be one of trust and faith in Him that He will finish what He started and that you'll receive the love that He has for you. Oh, He'll work on your behavior, but please at least start with the fact that he is, His death on the cross was able to clean your conscience too. He loves you. You're clean. Now, you know and I know, Peter wasn't the greatest example of holy living after his faith in Christ, was he? He made a lot of boo-boos. Actually, we've only had a few recorded. He probably made more. But the neat thing is, Jesus said to him, you're already clean. Oh, he still had some big blunders to make down the road. But in the eyes of God, he had been made clean. Why? Salvation and cleansing and justification and sanctification are a gift. Stop trying to help God save you. He's already done it. You're His. He loves you. He'll get you there. Why don't you enjoy the ride? Like I said, the more this sinks in, it'll be a lot more fun to be around. Alright, so here we go. Get ready for number seven here. Jesus is now heir of all things. He made the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God. He sustains everything by His powerful word. He provided purification for sins. And lastly, in this one couple of verses here, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. By the way, when someone sits down, what does that mean according to the Bible? They've finished their work. Listen to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. Now I know some of you, I might be going so fast you don't have time to, to keep up with me and maybe finding the Bible verses in it is easy for you. And that's okay. At least write these down so you can go back over them yourself slowly and let God teach you. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, when we come back next week, we're going to be dealing with a lot of these passages because the Hebrew writer quoting is going to be quoting from some of these. So I'm not going to go into much detail about this. But again, here we see that he was told by the Father to come sit at my right hand until I make the enemies a footstool for your feet. We also see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, a very famous passage that a lot of us probably could quote. It says, uh, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here again we see the picture of He accomplished salvation for sins. He accomplished sanctification through what He did on the cross. And then He sat down. But I don't want you to miss something. Look at what it, how it describes Jesus. He's the author and the what of your faith? And the perfecter. Let that sink in for a minute. We would all agree He's the author of my faith uh, and salvation. He's given me salvation. But it also says He's the one who perfects you. He's the one that's going to get you there. You know, because we have had the wrong concept of the fact that God's measuring our performance and checking off the boxes whether we did right or wrong. That's why we've been so hard on each other around us. Because if you honestly think God's measuring your performance, 
your natural instinct is to measure the performance of the people around you. That's why when Jesus said to Peter, here's how you're going to die, he said, well, tell me how John's going to die. There are some things that God says to us, I don't want you to do that. And we'll say, but, Joe, but look at Joe's doing it. Remember when your kids were little and you said, I want you to clean your room? Well, are you going to tell Sue to clean her room? If I want her room to stay, remain messy, what's that to you? You follow me. You know, that's what God said to, to, to Peter when he wanted to know. Folks, God's not measuring your performance. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Now, before we move on to the next verses, on how Jesus is everything we need in a mediator, and that's what the, where the Hebrew writer is going to go, there's one more thing I want to pull out of this section that we've just had. I know we've just looked at verses 1, 2, and 3. But there's something here that is so amazingly profound, I don't want you to miss it. Okay? Because if you get what I'm about to show you, it'll help the whole rest of the book of Hebrews open up. Alright? Here's the first thing that we've seen. We saw this last week. That Jesus Christ is the final prophet through whom God has spoken His final word. Right? In the past he spoke through prophets and in many times in his various ways. But in these last days he's spoken through his son. Jesus is the final prophet. Not only is he the final prophet, Jesus is the priest, as we just saw today, who accomplished a perfect and final work of cleansing people's sins. Alright? Can anybody guess what the third one's going to be? He's prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, as we just saw, is the King who sits enthroned in the place of honor with God and as God. I'll say that again. Jesus is the prophet through whom God has spoken His final word. He is the priest who has accomplished the perfect and final work of cleansing people's sins. And He is the King who sits enthroned in the place of honor with God and as God. And you're going to see the Hebrew writer develop what we've just looked at. And oh, by the way, that was all just in the first three verses of this book. There's so much here. But what I want to do in the time we have left tonight is I want to deal with verse 4. Alright? Now I'm going to read to you verses 4 through the end of the chapter because they all kind of tie together. We won't be able to break down the other verses in time because of time. But for tonight, I want to finish with verse 4. But I'll read the rest of the chapter. Listen to what it says here now. So he, this is Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited it is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, there's two things from this verse 4 that I really think we have to deal with tonight to kind of help us get past the hurdle. All right? The, the first hurdle is this. All right? 
What does it mean that Jesus has inherited His name? You see there in verse 4? He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. And it appears from the context that this name is Son. Now we know Jesus has many names. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus, which means Savior. Uh, You know, uh, there are many names that He has. The Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. But I think in the context here, the Hebrew writer is talking about His name, the fact that He was called Son. What does it mean that He inherited the name Son? Wasn't He the Son before He sat down at the right hand of the Father? Yes. Let me show you a couple of verses that show that actually He actually was the Son before He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 10. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Although He was a Son... He learned obedience from what He suffered, and once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. And it was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll break this passage down when we get to it in chapter 5. But for right now, it says that although He was a son, He learned obedience through suffering. The Scripture clearly says that He was a son when He was on the earth. Hebrews chapter 1 again, verses 1 through 3. And what we just read, look again at how it says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets, and at many times in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son, again, is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus was the Son the whole time that He was on the earth, and... According to what we just read there in verse 3, when else? When He made the universe. Do you see it? The Son made the universe. So Jesus has always been the Son. This is a hard thing for us to grasp because, again, we're starting to try to talk about things that are outside of time. And and it's hard for us to even fathom the fact that God has always existed because where infinity is, is just such a different thing from where we are in time and space. Everything we know in time and space has a beginning and an end. It's hard for us. Have you ever sat down one day and tried to think of where God came from? You ever tried? What happens? It's like a computer crash, isn't it? You know when your computer crashes, it just shuts down? That's what your brain does as you try to even fathom it. It's not something we can even fathom. But God has always existed. And that's why back in Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. The Bible clearly states, as you're going to see in our study, that man was created a little lower than the angels. So we weren't made in the image of the angels. We are made in God's image. But why did He say, let us? Because He has always existed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's always been one God, manifested in three parts. Now, then what does it mean then, when He says, He inherited a name? Okay, well, definitely the angel came to Mary and said, you'll have a son, you'll call him Jesus. But he'd already, he'd already been the son. He didn't inherit that name when uh, um, he was conceived in human form, no, because he'd always been the son. 
But the scripture appears that he'll inherit it at the sitting down. After he had finished his obedience. What does the scripture say? Go back here now to, uh, to verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus receives the title of son in the same way he inherits all things by the Father's eternal decree. In other words, even though he's always been the son, he will forever be the son. And the Father has decided to glorify the Son for eternity in heaven. And as God has decreed that all things are going to be given to Jesus, that's why Jesus said all authority on heaven and earth has now been given to me. That's why Jesus, the, the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. The Father has decreed that all glory go to the Son and He has inherited all things. Oh, and along with that, He has inherited that name forever and ever and ever. Do you not understand that when we get to heaven, you will see God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit? Do you not understand that the Bible teaches that Jesus took on flesh and forever has now going to be in flesh? When He rose from the dead and He had the resurrected body, it wasn't a spiritual body. Yeah, He could pass through walls. But then when He met with His disciples in the upper room, remember what He said? He said, touch me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. Give me something to eat. Why did he ask them to give him something to eat? To prove that he was really not a ghost because a ghost would have put it in his mouth and it would have hit the floor, right? It didn't hit the floor. He has flesh and bones for eternity. He will always be the Son. And the Bible goes on to say, as we remember in our Revelation study, that his glory will be so great that there will be no need of an earthly son, an S-U-N, because Jesus' glory will light everything. He's the radiance of God's glory and will be forever and ever and ever. Alright, so hopefully you're past that hurdle because some people wrestle with, well, he inherited the title son. Was that then? No, he's always been son. It has just now been glorified, if you will. Alright, here's the big question. Has anybody even wondered at all why the Hebrew writer is going into such great detail at the very beginning of this book to talk about how Jesus is greater than the angels? Think about that for a minute. The Hebrew writer now is going into in tremendous detail by starting off by saying Jesus is greater than the angels. Most of us today would go, duh. I mean, who, who, who wrestles with whether or not Jesus is greater than the angels? Those who were taught that we had the law, that's part of it, that, that we were made a little lower than the angels, but there's, there, there's, there's more to it, but that's part of it. Uh, I'll be honest with you, that's a part of it. The fact that the Jews revered the angels, and the fact that, that they were involved at Sinai, that's one of the things we're going to talk about. I just want you to let this sink in, because this is where the Hebrew writer is beginning, and where he's going here is he's saying, Jesus, he spoke through the prophets and passed him many times in various ways, but now in these last days he's spoken through his son, whom he's made heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, and he went on into this great description, sevenfold description of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. 
Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, keep in mind, who's he writing to? He's writing to a group of Jewish background Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism because of persecution that they faced because of of Jesus. So there's three things I want to point out to you that I think are reasons as the because. Alright? First is, the final message of God, which was communicated by His Son, is far greater than the Old Covenant, which was brought by angels. Which is kind of what you were talking about a little bit, Fred. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1-4. through The Hebrew writer, after talking about this whole section we just read, how Jesus is greater than the angels, says we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and that's the law, the old covenant, if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, and God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. He'll develop this part. I'm not going to go into much more detail on it tonight. He'll develop it more in our study of Hebrews. But one of the things is this. The Jews were reverencing the Old Covenant, the law, because it had been brought by angels. And the Hebrew writer says, yeah, but this new covenant was brought by God's Son. Nah, 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 nah. You know? It's greater. Alright? Than the angels. There's a second thing. The new world to come, and again, we're not going to go into too much detail on this because we're going to develop it as we do our study of the book. The new world to come in which Christ Jesus reigns. You know, He's going to come back and gather His bride, remember? He's going to take us to be with Him. There's going to be a seven-year period left for the nation of Israel and the world. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to reveal Himself to the nation of Israel. They're going to turn to Him and look on Him whom they pierced. They're going to receive Him as their Messiah. He's going to come back and He's going to set up His kingdom on the earth, reign for a thousand years, and at the end of that time period, Satan will be loosed from the pit, and they then we'll go into eternity where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign over an actual earth and, and, and all. It's not just floating around in clouds playing harps. The new world to come in which Christ Jesus reigns is far greater than this old world in which angels are assigned different nations for administration. Did you know that? You know the Bible actually talks about how angels have been given administration over nations? Uh, there's a place in... Uh, well, to take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. He said, It's not to angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But then He goes on to talk about how the world to come has been given to Jesus to rule and reign. Well, there's just glimpses of it in the Scripture. Uh, and um, For the sake of time, I'll just reference them, and you can go look at them if you want. And Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 talks about how Michael, the archangel, is the prince or the ruler or the guardian or the protector of who? Israel. Michael is the prince. says that in a couple places. Your prince. Angels have been given responsibility over kingdoms of this world. Now, unfortunately, just as much as God has angels who have administration over kingdoms. Did you not understand? And maybe this will be helpful for some of you. The Bible also says that Satan, who's the ruler of this world for now, for a time being, the prince of the power of the air, do you realize that his demons actually have dominion over certain nations? Principalities and powers? I'm sorry? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, your list of those they have rule over is quite big now. 
But actually, if you remember back in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel was praying and asking God for insight and wisdom, and he prayed for three weeks, 21 days. Then finally the answer came, and when the, the angel that came with the answer said to him, I came as soon as you prayed. But the prince or the chief of Persia, which by the way is Iran, the chief of Persia resisted me. And I had to fight with him for 21 days until Michael came and helped me. And then I was able to get through. What do you mean the chief of Persia? Folks, as much as we in this earthly kingdom will have a king or a governor or a president, but we would then have other people helping that one individual rule and reign over the kingdoms of this world in the same way Satan has set up kingdoms in this world in the spiritual realm and there are actual powerful demons who are ruling in the spiritual realm over nations. God has His angels doing the same, but if we turn our back and say we don't want God to be our king, which side of the spiritual battle is going to have preeminence over that nation? Remember Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. See, we keep thinking, if we get the right people in office, everything will be better. You're blind if you think the right people in office is going to change this country. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying get involved in the political process. But you better understand, it's prayer and it's God who makes the actual change, if it's going to be real change. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We battle against principalities and powers, evil forces in the heavenly realms. In this world right now, angels have been given administration over kingdoms and nations. But in the one to come, Jesus rules and reigns everything. I think he'll do a pretty good job. I don't, think we'll, I don't think we'll impeach him. Go ahead, Ron. So Israel got Michael? We at least know that their chief prince, according to Scripture, is, is Michael. He's the only archangel we know is named. Who did we get? I don't know. Beauregard. I have no idea. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I don't know. It, like I say, they just give us glimpses. But that'd be a good question to ask. Uh, you know, we get to have it. Okay, which one of you guys was over America? I want to know right now. You know, um, the last part of this is this. It appears, though, that they're also, and this one's not as provable from Scripture as, as the first two are, but it appears that there also might have been creeping into the church a form of angel worship such as the type that needed to be dealt with in Colossae. Go with me real quick to Colossians chapter 2 and look at verse 18. Paul says to the leaders there, don't let anyone, verse 18 of chapter 2 of Colossians, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head, speaking of Jesus. It appears that there were people who were not only worshiping angels, there were those who were teaching that type of thing. We're not going to go there, but back in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, the Hebrew writer talks about, be careful about these strange teachings that have been creeping into the church. But you say, well, Jim, well, that was probably then. People don't worship angels now. Let me read to you a section from my good buddy Tony Kessinger's book, and if you haven't gotten it, come see me. I can tell you how to get one. The Devil is in the Details. 
Probably the best, not one of the best, the best books that's out there right now to help you understand how Satan works and who Satan is. It goes into more detail than any other book I've ever read on this subject. It is incredible. And in, chap- in, in one of the first chapters here, in page 10, I'm just going to read you this one little section. It says, Despite their being created than, higher than humans, angels are still created beings and are not to be worshipped. Neither should prayers or supplications be made to angels. One popular prayer says, and this is an actual prayer that's being taught in churches today, one popular prayer says, Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. There are actually churches that are teaching that prayer. We're going to pray to an angel to be at your side, to light and to guard and to rule you and to guide you. Whose responsibility is that? Jesus. God's. Through the Holy Spirit. That's, that's who's supposed to lead and guide and rule and teach. But there are churches today that are teaching you to pray that to an angel. However, angels have no ability to hear or answer for the prayers of humans. They're God's ministering spirits for the purpose of carrying out His will. On two occasions in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John fell to his knees to worship the angel who was giving them the information. The angel responded to John, See to it that you don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Worship God. Later in chapter 22, uh, John, overwhelmed again by what had been revealed to him, fell to his knees to worship an angel. And once again, the angel responded, See to it you don't do that. For I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who will keep the word of this book. Worship God. Writing to the Colossians, as I just said, Paul exhorts them not to take delight in the worship of angels. Jim? Yes. Then that takes away the people who say, My guardian angels watch over You know, the Bible does teach that God has given us guardian angels. It does. The Bible actually, Jesus Himself said, be careful about what you do to children because they're angels. They, we have guardian angels in a sense. But... If you're putting your faith in your guardian angel instead of the one who gives the guardian angel his instructions, you're in trouble. <laughs> well, I've heard that, that you can commend angels, uh, angels of protection and angels. Of... Well, unfortunately, that's not biblically true. Now, one day, the Bible says, when we pass from this life to the next, we will rule angels and we will give them commands at that time. In this life, they belong to their master, which is God. And He, for our good, commands them. We can't command them now. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that. You want to say something? I was just going to ask, is it true that Catholics teach praying to... Some, some, some do. Some, some do. Like I say, I, I want to be real careful that we don't lump everybody in. Because like I say, a lot, you know the Bible actually says I'm Catholic? The word Catholic means universal. Roman Catholics, there are those Roman Catholics that teach praying to Mary... The Bible is very clear. I hope you do understand that. I'm not bashing any denominations, but the Bible is very clear. There is one mediator between man and God. The man, Jesus Christ. So, it is wrong. I'll just say it. It is wrong to pray to Mary, to have her talk to God on your behalf. It is wrong to pray to a saint, to have them talk to God on your behalf. I've heard people say, well, God is so busy with all these things, that's why we pray to the saint. Folks, that is a horrible view of God. He... Not only created this world, He is the one who sustains it. Remember we just read that? He holds it all together. He can can handle it. We need to be real careful. There's tendencies in our life to kind of put more faith in a good feeling 
than the truth. You know? Oh, there's a good presence here. Oh, there's a bad presence here. I think the Bible says that God's with me all the time, is He not? What is your definition of the grieving of the Holy Spirit? I think, I'm going to try to say it nicely, I think you're misusing that scripture. There are times when definitely we will sense the presence of evil, but at the same time, the Bible says what? Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll run. The demons are the ones who are supposed to be fleeing, not us. There are definitely times you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, but there are other times you don't. And you have to trust Him by faith. See what I'm saying? What what I said before, though, was people worship the feeling. There are those who, when they hear the latest revival is broken out in this part of the country, start running there because God is pouring out His Spirit over there in Brownsville, or God is pouring out His Spirit in Toronto. Folks... You don't need to run around looking for the spout where their umpah comes out. God is with you. God is with you. In Him you have been received everything. You've received fullness in Christ. Don't worship the feeling. Yes, there are times we feel His presence. Yes, there are times we sense the presence of evil. But there are those who make their living in the, or how they live controlled by what they feel instead of the truth of who God is and who they are. Jesus is greater than the spiritual realm. Shall we put it that way? He created it all. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. And you'll be good. But He said that even though I sent Him to the Father, I was sending someone greater than the Holy Spirit. Well, He actually doesn't say greater. He said it's good for you that I'm going away. Because if I go away... If I don't go away, he cannot come. But I don't remember where it says he's greater than him. He said, we'll do greater things than, than, than he's done. Yep. But, when, but that simply means is the fact that, you know, God working through God's impressive. But God working through us is even more impressive, is it not? Think about this. Let me give you a perfect example of us doing greater things. Jesus walked on the water, right? Remember when the story where, where Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are in the boat? And, and Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to walk on the water. Alright? So they watched Jesus walk on the water. Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to walk on the water. Jesus says, come on out. So Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. And then, of course, he starts to doubt and he starts to sing. Jesus grabs him and they get back in the boat. You go and double check it. The scripture literally says this. Then the disciples said, now we know that you're God. Wait a minute. He was walking on the water. Why wasn't that enough? Well, I mean, you're God and you can do all sorts of stuff. But Peter sinks. If you can make Peter walk on the water, if you can make him walk on the water, you really must. But that's the greater things that we'll be able to do. He'll demonstrate his power through us. You understand what I'm saying? That's what he's talking about. Folks, I hope you understand the Hebrew writer wants us to understand the greatness of Jesus Christ. He's enough. One thing that I've been... I always like to meditate on passages of Scripture. And I'm going to give you this one to chew on and we'll close with this. I love to meditate on passages of Scripture. And what I mean is this. I take a passage of Scripture and I allow God to just speak it to me and teach me from it over. And I just keep thinking it over and allow God to speak and teach me. Here's what I'm, one thing I'm chewing on right now. Where Jesus told Paul in in, in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for you. I have taken 
that passage, of course, he goes on to say, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm letting God say to Jim Johnson over and over as I deal with life, as I continue to grow in my knowledge of him, he's saying, Jim, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, what I've heard so far is, I'm enough. Oh, but God, if you'd only do this. (laughs) No, I'm enough. But God, if you would take care of this financial situation, I'm enough. My grace is sufficient for you. Wouldn't it be awesome if we really believed it? That His grace was sufficient because He is enough. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank You for this chance to study Your Word. Thank You for how there's so much here just in four verses. Lord, we come back next week looking forward to what it is You want us to see. But I know this much already, Lord. You've really told us to focus on Jesus and Him alone. There is a tendency in all of us to take our eyes off of You and put them on the storm or take our eyes off of You and put them on other things. Because there are times that in Your divine plan and in Your design, you, You are silent. And we don't like that. We're impatient people. And so sometimes we think that maybe we need to pray to somebody else and, and You say, no, Your Word says don't do that. The other times we start maybe thinking, well, maybe God wants me to do this or do that, and you say, no, I want you to trust me. Father, may you, Jesus, be enough. May your grace be sufficient for us. May we rest in the fact that you hold everything together, including us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.